0: This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Well, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and it's great to be with you. Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Luke 18, if you will, if you haven't already done so. Um, and as you do, I want to mention one One thing. Um, careful. You've still got a, you got a leash there. Um, <laughs> um, it's about Advent. Uh, Advent's coming up starting in December. We've got four weeks of Advent leading up to our Christmas Eve uh, service, our gathering here, which will be at 4 o'clock on Christmas Eve. If you're in town, we'd love to have you and your family join us for that special candlelight tradition that we have. Uh, but the four weeks of, of Advent, um, we'll still have two services, 9 and 11, uh, but it's different um, you'll be hearing from uh, four different uh, leaders here in the church. They'll be each preparing a, uh, not necessarily a full like swinging for the fences sermon, uh, which is typical here, uh, but more of like a, um, an Advent Christmas homily where we try during the Advent season to build the tension of longing and waiting. That's the heart behind Advent. Um, And so try to place yourself in the silent years of waiting for the Messiah to finally show up. We've got the rules. We've got the commandments. We've got the promises. When will the Great One make Himself known and fulfill all these promises? When will He accomplish everything? When can He show up? And we know that He did 2,000 years ago. Uh, But the longing and waiting then and now waiting and longing for His return, Uh, the Advent season... Um, is to help prepare our hearts to truly celebrate what Christmas means. Um, and what I've discovered here, because Advent, as, as a Baptist kid growing up, Advent was like for Catholics, right? That's the only category I had, and I just felt like it was wrong and sinful. To um, <laughs> uh, be honest, that's where a lot of Baptists think, because it's you know the church calendar is not really a concept to most Baptists. And... Um, but here, 10 years ago, we started it at the Axis because people wanted to. And I'm like, sure, as long as you lead it and teach it, because I have no idea what it is. I don't even know if it's right. And, um, <laughs> and so we've learned a lot. But what it's done for me and my family personally, and I hope it does for you, is it, it, it makes Christmas more than two days. Um, it, it, it really makes it 25 days of longing so that whenever you get to Christmas morning and you find those presents and you have that time with your family and you open these things up, there's a significance and a depth to, to the significance behind what that means um, that otherwise uh, has been uh, missed uh, for me outside of these 10 years. So go along with us in this journey. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun over the next, uh, well, throughout December. Um, so just be prepared. It's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to have family readings and scripture readings, more liturgy. It's really a special, special time. B- more brief. More brief. Uh, usually, they're right at an hour, hour and five minutes each gathering. Um, so, plan brunch, all right? Uh, that, that could be fun. Anyway, um, so there's that. Well, today's week 83. In our study through uh, the book of Luke, a series that we've entitled The Real Jesus, Uh, we have committed ourselves to working diligently through Luke in order for us to gain a more complete picture of who Jesus was, is, and will be, according to Luke, who was a doctor um, and a historian. He was a physician and a historian, a highly respected man within Christianity as well as those on the outside of Christianity. And he wrote Luke according to um, his introduction to his gospel account in order for us to have Theophilus in particular, uh, a man that he was writing for, but for all of us to have um, uh, assurance in the things that we've heard, certainty in the things that we've heard about Jesus. Um, And so as a good historian, he's giving us these certain things, and this is our heart that we would know the real Jesus. So let's ask God for help as we uh, take on this endeavor here in chapter 18 today. Father, help us, help me, um, help us all hear from you something that we really, really need to hear. Minister to us, serve us, care for us through your word. Help us pay attention, gain our affection, and may we live differently Because of what you reveal to us here, enable this difference, inspire this difference that we might live as we leave from here because of what you do in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So some context, um, you know, Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. He talks about that in the text this morning where he's going to be killed. He talks about that in our passage this morning and along the way he teaches um, the disciples and and Pharisees, uh, the religious, he he teaches the crowd who all have mixed opinions um, about who Jesus is and and as we've been studying in chapter 18 particularly we've learned that Jesus is, is wanting those who follow him to focus on his righteousness, that his righteousness is the only sufficient means for us to be saved. Faith in Jesus alone is our only hope. It's not our riches. It's not our money. It's not our reputation. It's not our religion. It's not our goodness. It's not our stinginess. It's not our generosity. Never will you ever find Jesus telling us to place our hope in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own righteousness, in our own performance. But we do hear over and over and over again, even earlier in this chapter 18, we're told that we must place our hope more and more in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect performance as us and for us, and that we're to humbly trust Jesus alone, having his righteousness shelter us, cover us, uh, and represent us before the Father, And Jesus says the kingdom of God is is only for those who trust not in themselves, but those who trust in Jesus and his righteousness for the forgiveness of their sins and the reconciliation between themselves and God. Only those who place their faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone will be saved. Jesus says in chapter 18, otherwise it's impossible. It's impossible outside of his work and God acknowledging Christ's work on that person's behalf. Then we have our passage for today. So let's get to work here, starting in verse 31. And taking the 12, now remember I've said this for weeks, how he would often teach crowd, teach Pharisees. He would sometimes pull disciples aside to look directly at them. We have that right here. And taking the 12, he said to them, take notice, guys. I want you to see this. We are going to Jerusalem, and everything, everything that is written about me, His preferred title, about the Son of God, by the prophets. From Old Testament prophets all the way up through our friend John the Baptist. All that has been prophesied about me will be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. What God has promised for centuries, promised what the Messiah would do and accomplish, he will do. What God says he will do, he will do. And he unpacks some of those prophecies. Here in the following verses, for he will be handed over. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and he'll be mocked and he'll be shamefully treated and he'll be spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he'll rise. But they, they did not understand or comprehend any of this. This saying was concealed. It was hidden from them and they didn't grasp it. They couldn't perceive it. They, they couldn't discern what was said. Well, what about you when, you when you hear this? When you hear about Jesus Christ dying and beating death, <laughs> that's, a, that's a marvelous concept. That's a marvelous uh, prediction and uh, an event that actually took place. When you hear this, does, does this move you? Do you understand it? Are you seeing it? On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus takes his disciples off to the side. He looks them in the eyes and tells them what's about to happen is so not a surprise. All this has been actually in the works for thousands of years. It's been written and recorded hundreds of times that this is to happen. Know that this is not a surprise. This is God's plan. I will be placed in the hands of the Romans, the Gentiles. I will be mocked. I will be made fun of in front of hundreds of people. I'll be made a spectacle, a public spectacle in front of so many. I will be treated shamefully. I will be naked before everyone. I'll be spit upon dozens of times. I'll be flogged and beaten within an inch of my life, and then I will be killed. I will die, and my death will be real, and I will be no more. I will be dead. However, after three days, I will miraculously and powerfully come back to life. I will slay death. I will kill death. I will defeat it. I'll be down and out, but I will get up. And hearing this, they did not understand what Jesus was saying. They had no category Right, they, they had no um, ability to discern what it was that, that they were hearing, that he was saying. It's as if Jesus says, you will understand when the time is right. But for now, let's continue onward to the cross. But here and now, 2019, as we approach 2020, I'm very afraid. I'm, I'm fearful that many of us who have heard these words... What Jesus has just said. We've heard these words our entire life. I fear that we're inoculated to their truth and that we're numb to its power. Therefore, we never really hear them. We know them already. We never absorb their meaning because we've heard it, we know it, I can say it myself. We have it on coffee mugs and t-shirts and stickers. I fear that, that many of us think we've heard, and we think we understand, and we nod, occasionally raise a hand or clap, and we haven't really understood, and we haven't really heard. I'm afraid that our familiarity with the gospel can cause us to grow numb to the bizarre wonder of the gospel. Did you hear what Jesus just said? He said that he's going to step into this suffering. He's going to die, and he's going to beat death. That's got to be crazy. Even those who've been Christians for 50 years, you've got to still consider that and be like, that's pretty wild. But all too often, this isn't the case. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like being from Nashville. There's music talent everywhere. It's not like that everywhere else. But we get used to it. It's like being a, a New England Patriots fan. Ugh. It's not like that with other teams. Titans fans all say, amen, right? <laughs> Jill and, and Bethany were in the Bahamas. My wife and daughter were in the Bahamas this week on a mission trip uh, following the destruction from Hurricane Dorian, right? And they're in the Bahamas, and, and Jill and this guy is having this conversation about what they just, like, find joy in seeing, what they want to see, you know. Bahamas, like, I want to I see this beautiful Caribbean, right? He's like, I want to see a squirrel. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, you're in the Bahamas. Like, I would want to see a beautiful sunset, right? I want to see, there's a lot of things I would want but a squirrel? But they don't have squirrels. They don't know what it's like to pass one on the road or see it run in front of you as if It doesn't know to get off this road because you're coming right behind it. It doesn't know what it's like to see them jumping through the leaves this time of year. We see it and we don't even really think much about it because we're used to it. It's like perhaps being born five minutes from the Grand Canyon. You've been raised around the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon isn't marvelous. It's not grand. It brings in tourism, but it doesn't move you. You've seen it your whole life. I'm afraid the same thing is true for us in the gospel. It's lost its grandeur. It's it's lost its uniqueness. You hear about Jesus coming to die for you and beat death, and its it doesn't shake us. It's like a flu shot. We're at risk of getting just enough of the real thing to help keep us from getting the real thing. The disciples heard this. They didn't understand it. Is this true for you? Are you grasping the gospel truth? Do you live it? Are you applying it to your life, to all of your life? Or do you have it compartmentalized where it's like a Sunday message, but then you live like hell the rest of the week? Do you rely on the gospel? Are you trusting in the gospel? Are you placing all of your hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Every time you hear the gospel in song or sermon, you have to be telling yourself, consciously telling yourself, pay attention. Jeremy, you must have this matter to your heart and soul. Do not grow numb. Feel this. Jeremy, don't drift. Don't wander off. I want you to listen. Jeremy, hear these words. There is a fountain flowing with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And those who are under its flow are washed from their sins. They're made white as snow. Hear this. Sing this. Let it matter. Let it sink in. Grasp a hold of it. Don't just hum it. Don't just sing it. Don't just read it. Don't just hear it. Absorb it. Believe it. And as you hear the gospel in song or sermon, pray, pray, God, please don't hide this from me. I don't want to be like your disciples right here in this passage. I want to hear it. I want you to let it change me. Make my heart porous. Make it receptive like a dry sponge to the refreshing water of the gospel. Remove the wax coating from my overhearing of the goodness of the good news. And let my heart soak in the gospel. Do not let my heart be like a duck's back to this refreshment. I want to absorb it. Well, for these disciples, God kept back this truth from them, from being fully received by them for a moment. God caused it to be hidden from them. And later in Acts, which is really Luke part 2, right? same author, same historian, In Acts, God causes it to be revealed to them. And the world has never been the same since. I believe the same is true for us today. I believe when Christians truly see, understand, and believe and hope in the gospel, that this world will never be the same. And I believe in many ways the world is the way that it is today because Christians are numb to the gospel. Or people are religious and not truly Christian. That's why we are in the situations that we're in. Remind yourself through even this story here, this passage so far, that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all, over all things, and he knows what's best. And there are probably dozens of reasons why he hides this truth from them. And we don't know them all, but God knows why. Hence, we're to pray. God, reveal to us. Do not hide this from us. Do not hide it from our hearts. And please don't hide this from the hearts of our friends and our family. Because he's sovereign over these things. Well, Jesus and the disciples, they move on from there. They're making their way towards Jerusalem, and they're making their way into the city of Jericho. Verse 35. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, and he was begging. And hearing a crowd going by, this blind man asked and inquired what this meant. Well, during this time, the blind were helpless, they were often exploited. Today, we have Braille, and we have technology, we've got service animals, and it's, it's horrible to be blind, I'm sure, from what I can imagine, but it's much more bearable today than it would have been 2,000 years ago. Back then, they were essentially unable to live life. They were totally incapable. But the blind man in our story here, he can speak, and he can hear, and he uses what he has to get God's attention. He asks. All this unusual noise, all this commotion, like there's I can, I can tell there's a lot going on. What is it? Like why there's there so many people here? Which this speaks to the growing crowd, right, as Jesus continues to make his way into Jerusalem. Most of this crowd is from Jericho, though many have followed him, it's believed, even from his days in Galilee. And what would happen, uh, historically speaking, a rabbi would come into a city like Jericho and he'll be greeted and he'll be treated to a banquet. And it would be expected that he would teach and lecture some in their synagogue and then overnight and then get up and leave the next day. So there was a lot of this crowd greeting this rabbi, uh, this traveling rabbi. So what's going on? And he told him in 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He's making his way through our city. He cries out. And this cry, um, the Greek word here, um, it isn't, of course, like a mourning. It's, it's not a sadness. Um, it is a, a shrieking shout, okay? Um, he's given it all he has, right? He cries out Son of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Who's passing by? What's going on? Well, Jesus is making his way through our city. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's got no further questions. He knows what he has to do. He's heard enough about Jesus. He knows enough of what's been said about him to cry out for mercy. And he cries out to the son of David. This is recognizing his deity. He's recognizing his work as the Messiah. That's a messianic title. He's seeing him as the one sent from God to be the yes and amen of all the Old Testament promises and covenants. And in Mark chapter 10, Mark makes it clear that this is Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. If you had flannel graph growing up, that was blind Bartimaeus. All right? But Bartimaeus means son of filth. So the son of filth calls out to the son of David for mercy. And then verse 39, and those who were in front of him as he was behind him, right? He was behind all the people on the the side of the road. Those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And that word literally means like to shut up, like as, as rudely as possible, to shut your mouth. He doesn't whimper nor comply. He cries out all the more, louder and louder, greater and greater, son of David, Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 40, and Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, allow me to see. Lord, help me see. Lord, permit me to recover my sight. Let me see. The crowd tries to get this beggar to shut up, but then Jesus stops. Jesus wants to see the blind. Jesus wants to see the blind beggar. It doesn't matter that the blind man can't see Jesus. What matters is that Jesus sees the blind man. And then perhaps Jesus uses some of the very people that were trying to rebuke this beggar to actually be the ones that carry him to see Jesus. (laughs) I love that idea. And Jesus is calling this man not to make fun of him, which many Pharisees would do such a thing. It wasn't to make a negative spectacle or degrading spectacle out of him. But he's there to help him. He's there to restore what's ruined and make right what is wrong. Now, to be historically clear, rabbis don't do this. They do not go out of their way to recognize the impaired, the diseased, or the afflicted. Nor are they to be cruel to them, to be be very clear. Uh, But they wouldn't go to this extent to address them and to welcome them, to touch them, to talk them, to serve them, to ask, like, what can I do for you? They would never do this. This is the power of Christ Jesus. This is his authority. This is his mercy. This speaks of his humility. This is extraordinary. This is beautiful. This sort of thing just didn't happen. Right? So we read it and we're like, okay, cool. If you saw this take place in this culture, you would be flabbergasted. You would just be in awe. You would find it hard to believe. Now, I remember earlier the beggar asked for mercy. Well, What's typically expected when a beggar asks for mercy is a coin, right? And then once given the coin, the beggar would say aloud, this is a very noble man. He's a very generous man. This is a very kind woman, the kindest woman that I've met today. She deserves all recognition. She deserves your honor. You know, praise such a person. That's typically how this would work when you would give to a beggar. Jesus humbly asked this blind beggar specifically what he wanted from him. And now this blind man gets more specific and he gets more honest in his plea for mercy. What can I do for you? Well, I yearn to be able to see. I want to be healed from my blindness. Jesus asked what he needs. He actually asked, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? How would you like for me to help you? How can I serve you? And the blind man responds with something that surprises me. Of course he'd like to see, but he's talking with Jesus, right? You would think the answer would be, well, since it's you, um, my sins being forgiven will be great. And that would be perhaps the right answer in this moment. If you were to ask for one thing, that's probably the answer that we would feel obligated to give because it's Jesus, but that's not the true, authentic desire of this man's heart. Not at this point. He wants to see. In the same way, there are things on your heart today, as you sit here in this room, that you would list as more important to you right now if you would be honest with yourself. And Jesus knows that. Just as he, he knows this answer of this blind man, he knows the desire of this blind man. He wants you to allow yourself to hear you say what your greatest need is to him. Admit your desire to Jesus. Don't hold back from being honest. The blind man doesn't hold back, and Jesus doesn't condemn him or shun him for his honesty. What can I do for you? Well, I'd like to see. Man, come on. I'm Jesus. I'm right here in front of you, and I'm asking what you can do, and you don't want me to take away your sin? Get out of here, man. What do you think I've come here to do? Just heal people? He doesn't do this. Now think about the context. For those who have been with us in Luke 18, this request and this humility of this blind man, it it stands in stark contrast to the self-righteous, judgmental, arrogant pride in the people that we looked at just a couple weeks ago. But it resonates, doesn't it, with the tax collector in verse 13 where he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, Luke records all this in this way, and Jesus is working this stuff out this way because this flow and this context matters. So what can I do for you? Well, I want to see. I would love to be able to see. Jesus says in 42, receive your sight. Recover your sight. Your faith, your confidence in me has made you well. It literally means saved you. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has delivered you. Now there's at least three aspects of this man's faith that we can discern right here. One, he has faith that Jesus has the power of God to save, right? He believes that he can do this. The the second thing is he believes that Jesus has compassion on the poor and needy, and that certainly includes himself. But then the third thing is he's confident that Jesus is the son of David, which is a messianic title. And therefore, he accepts him as his Lord, his Master, his Savior. Upon this faith and upon this belief in Jesus, this man is radically changed. He's never the same. This man was changed by faith alone, in Christ alone, not in. Not in his faith, in his eyesight getting a little bit better over time, or or his mere attempts at trying to get his eyes to see better, or to squint his eyes more. Man, if I could change, if I could have this a greater ability to kind of focus in on some things, if if I could get these new eyeglasses. All these are sort of pictures of how we handle religion and trying to get things right in us with God. It's like focusing on these other variables. It's our attempt to get better on our own. But what was needed was simply faith in Christ as the one who can change. This is the same thing for us. Same is true for us in our salvation. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And all this happens to us spiritually when we see the real Jesus and we cry out for his mercy. Now immediately, look at verse 43. He recovered his sight and obeyed Jesus. That word followed is Greek for obey. And he obeyed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. All the people. A significant change in the crowd, specifically around the beggar, right? They went from rebuking to rejoicing. (laughs) They went from rebuking the blind man to rejoicing and praising God along with this no longer blind man. So This is the text. So as you consider this story, as you consider this, which actually happened, this isn't a parable, this is true. Mark says his name is Bartimaeus again, son of filth. As we consider this story, where do you find yourself? Who do you find yourself associating with? Who do you identify with? What resonates in this passage of scripture. Like this blind man on the side of the road, friend, do you hear Jesus asking you what he can do for you? Do you hear him? Do you answer? And are you honest? He came for the sick, right? But do you see yourself this way? He came for the sick, but do you see him this way? When he asks you, When he's there with you asking what he can do for you, do you respond? Perhaps you don't because you don't think he cares. Or if he does care, he doesn't have any good reason to care about you or care about that. How are you responding to Jesus today? What do you say? For those in need of Jesus' help, which is all of us, the application from this passage is clear. Boldly confess your need For his mercy. Let's do as this blind man, and let's lay aside our self righteousness. Let's lay aside our pride. Let's lay aside what others think, even what we fear within. And let's say, perhaps for the first time in our life, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I mean, this blind beggar, he knew that he couldn't provide for himself. He was totally dependent, fully dependent upon others, their kindness and their generosity. This blind man knew that he could not heal himself of his disease, of his illness, of what it was that led to his blindness. He was fully dependent upon the kindness, the power, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But he knew enough about Jesus to know that this was possible, and he went off what he knew in order to ask Jesus. But do you? Do you know enough of the real Jesus to confess your real need? Or do you know enough of a phony Jesus to never honestly ask? I believe this is a real problem for us. This could be why so many of us find it so troubling to pray, find it so difficult to pray. We get caught up in a trap of knowing enough of false Jesuses that were silent. Or we only speak of what we feel would be appropriate to say in our prayers, to say to this phony Jesus that we've conjured up in our minds, this phony Jesus that's always after the right answer, the right response, the right way to pray, the Jesus answer, and not the real answer of the real need that comes from the real you. But this morning, the real Jesus only wants the real you to give him the real answer of your real need. Let this blind beggar on the side of a road in ancient Jerusalem remind you that you can stop pretending. You don't have to fake it with God. You don't have to fake it with Jesus. You can be in prayer and you can put it all out there. You don't have to respond as we cordially do. Well, all's well, I'm just kind of busy right now. When inside you are terrified, when inside you are overcome, you are broken. Your reality is horrible. But you put on a smile. And we do the same thing with God. But we don't have to. What do you want me to do for you? Well, a new pair of jeans would be cool. You're blind. What do you want? Jesus can handle our honesty. But you've got to be honest with yourself. Often one of our biggest roadblocks to crying out for mercy is the thickness of our skin. Our determination. Our pride. Our self-righteous determination to never admit that we really have need. To cry out for mercy, that's too demeaning. It's probably not that bad. Out of fear, we struggle admitting and praying what's really bothering us. What's really troubling us. What's keeping us up at night? Friends, tell that to Jesus. It was only after this man became specific that his request for mercy was answered. Jesus cares for you. Jesus likes you. He came to help you where you are with exactly what you're struggling with. He wants to give you what you need, and he wants you to give that over to him. But you've got to ask for mercy. You've got to ask for help. Ask him to be kind to you. Ask him. Say, God, I just want you to be kind to me. Admit your need. Admit your needs to God. Be needy before God. Daddies, be a needy daddy. Don't be self-confident. Be a needy daddy before God. Mommies, be a needy mommy. Be a needy roommate. Be a needy boyfriend and girlfriend before God. Be a needy son or daughter before God. Don't be all composed before God. Don't pretend like you're not blind. The dark becomes darker when you pretend it's not dark for fear of what others might think. See your need. Don't soften it. Cry out for mercy. Yourself Yourself is the crowd saying, don't say it. Be quiet. Cry all the louder. Stick it to yourself. I probably shouldn't admit this, but that's when you should be admitting that. I probably shouldn't probably don't need to say this. Probably don't need to confess this. I probably shouldn't bring this up as a prayer because I'm, I'm afraid of da da, da da. And you just stay closed in this darkness. And it gets heavy. You don't have to do that. Even for those who've been Christians for decades, cry out for his mercy. You're not good enough to make it. Even being a Christian for 40 years without crying out for his mercy. Know that there's never a moment, there's never a second in your life where you're not 100% completely in need of his mercy. Regardless, friends, of how tidy your theology gets Never lose this desperation for God and Jesus and his mercy. And be very careful of the subtle religious drift that takes you to a place where you don't need him. You don't feel like you need him to be kind or merciful or powerful because you're pretty clean. Be careful of that religious drift. There's a freedom and a strength that comes to us daily as we confess our need for God's mercy. Mercies that are new every day. Trust him to refresh you in a special way with mercies every day. They're daily mercies. He doesn't reuse, repurpose, or recycle his mercies. Every day, it's a fresh experience of walking with him in newness of life. It is beautiful having this relationship with God. But the enemy tells us that it's wrong to be needy. The enemy tells us that we can't admit our need. But the gospel says that's the entry point for living every single day of your life is embracing your need. The heart of Christianity isn't trying harder or ignoring your need. The heart of Christianity is giving up. It's giving up control. It's giving up your independence, your self-sufficiency, and your self-righteousness. It's giving up your power. It's giving up your pride. The heart of Christianity is admitting, I am incapable. I can't live today by myself. I am powerless. If I try to handle my life today, I will ruin it all. I need God to be merciful and kind and very present and strong. I need God to be so much stronger than me and my sin today, or else I'm going to drive this thing off the rails. God be merciful to me. It requires, Christianity requires that we say often, I can't and I don't know. If you've been a Christian for 40 years and you haven't said, I don't know or I can't in a long time, you're not healthy. What we need to do is hear Jesus say to this, I can, I have, and it's why I showed up. I will. Stop listening to the condemning and rebuking voice of the religious and the proud telling you to be quiet and not admit your need. And hear Jesus shouting out to you, come to me. I'm here to help. What do you want me to do for you? And then tell him, tell him all of it, even that. And ask him for faith. Ask him for mercy in your faith. Ask him for mercy in your sickness and your illness, physically speaking. Ask him for mercy from the heartache of continually asking yourself, am I good enough? Why can't I get past this? Ask him for mercy in the heartache that comes from always having to ask, am I doing enough right things? Is God mad at me? Am I a disappointment? Ask God for mercy as you're contemplating what other people are saying about you. Or often wondering, am I an accident or does anyone care? Is God aware? Do I matter to this and, and, and so much more? Hear God say to you, I am here. I care. What do you want me to do for you? Friends, you have to have mercy. We are pathetic without it. We're dangerous living as if we don't need mercy. Please cry out for mercy. Often. Let's pray. God, Help us. Have mercy upon us and please deal mercifully with us. Help us. Help us trust. Help us believe. Help us hope in this gospel truth. Help us to easily ask for mercy. Asking more and more each day. Like a little child learning to talk, getting better at it every day. Would we be better and better at asking for mercy? Very fluent in admitting our need for mercy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.